This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Open your Bibles with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation 20. In the beginning, everything was pure and good and beautiful. And then the snake showed up. If you're familiar with the first few chapters of the Bible, you know that in Genesis 1 and 2, all truly is pure and good and beautiful. God has created a world that is full of beauty and void of corruption. And then, and I may run the danger of giving him more credit than he deserves, the serpent shows up and messes everything up. His arrival is, in a sense, what gets the dominoes going that leads to the world being the way that it is today. A twisted, broken place. Go with me back there to the brand new earth and look into the garden and watch him slither in to slyly introduce his venom into a perfect world. And then go from the beginning of the Bible and the beginning of the world to the end of the Bible, right on the edge of the end of the world. We've been considering together the book of Revelation uh, about once a month, going back for a little while now. And as we've considered this book, we have focused on the glorious hero of the book of Revelation, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a clear hero of the story. But there is also a clear villain in the story of Revelation. And that serpent back in Genesis 3 is the same as the villain here in Revelation chapter 20. We're going to consider that villain this morning. We're going to examine his identity. We'll catch a glimpse of his successes and his failures through the years. And we will learn of his final demise. Look with me at Revelation chapter 20 uh, as I read the first three verses. The Bible says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. We're going to look at some more of what this chapter shares, but let's just leave Satan in the bottomless pit for a few minutes. And I want to focus on his identity. Uh, What can we learn about this arch-villain? What can we learn about Satan's identity? And I think that it's helpful and instructive to consider the the four names that are used to refer to him in verse 2 of this chapter. Uh, It called him there the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan. And we find all four of these terms in the New Testament to refer to Satan. Uh, But I think that it helps us to take a little bit more time with them. The same four titles are attributed to him in Revelation 12, 9. And I think as we consider each of them, we learn something about the identity of Satan. So what can we learn from these four titles? Well, first of all, he is the dragon. 
The book of Revelation is the only place in Scripture where Satan is referred to as a dragon. Uh, so why call him a dragon here? Why would that be a term that would be chosen by God, chosen by the Apostle John, to attribute to Satan? Well, what do you think of when you think of a dragon? Well, we think of power. We think of something imposing. We think of something that inspires fear. But probably more than anything else, we think of destruction. That's what a dragon brings, right? Anytime there's a dragon in some work of fiction, most of the time, that's what the dragon is causing, bringing destruction of some kind. And Revelation chapter 12 actually introduces us to the dragon and clearly shows us this part of Satan's character. Uh, so if you would turn back with me to Revelation chapter 12, we skipped over this chapter earlier in the study of this book because I knew that we'd be referring back to it at this point in, in seeking to understand some more about the identity of Satan. Verse 1 says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, I want to clarify what, what we're looking at here. All right? This is uh, clearly a symbolic vision that's given to John. And this is actually a vision that covers quite a bit of history. It's not just something that's happening in the end times. This woman here with the crown of 12 stars, uh, that's a reference to the nation of Israel. And if you'll allow me for just a moment, um, perhaps you've noticed, perhaps you haven't noticed, as we've studied through this book, I've said very little about Israel. And that's not because Israel is not going to be present when these events occur. Uh, God has a very important, very big part for Israel to play in the last days. But as you look at the book of Revelation, unlike the prophetic books in the Old Testament that were written to the Jews, the book of Revelation is written to seven Gentile churches. And so what John is writing about most of the time is not focused on what has to do with the Jews. So I just want to clarify if you say, well, he went through the book of Revelation and he hardly mentioned the Jews. Does he not think they're going to be there? Well, that's, that's the answer to that question. And there's much that the minor prophets and the major prophets share about what will be going on with Israel at this time. But here in Revelation 12, we do find the nation of Israel pictured as this woman who's about to give birth. And then we have the great red dragon. Satan is there. And his desire is to devour this son. And then the next verse makes it clear to us who this son is. Uh, verse 5 says, And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And he guesses who this is referring to. Well, it's Christ. Uh, born of the nation of Israel, born to rule all nations. And so, Christ is born from Israel, and what is Satan's desire? To devour him. But, verse 5 says, And her child was caught up unto God, and to his throne. So Satan tries hard to destroy Christ. And when he fails, he turns his attention 
to the nation of Israel. Verse 13, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. In verse 15, the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. In verse 17, he went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We could say much more about what's going on in this chapter, but what I want to point out here is that through history, we've seen Satan doing all that he can to obliterate Israel. And that is shown clearly here in this chapter. He is a destroyer. He is out to ruin, to demolish, and to devour. He wants to destroy God's promised one. He wants to destroy God's chosen nation. Whatever God is building, Satan is trying to destroy. And as we look at his character as the dragon, I, I think that's clearly what this shows us. Satan is a destroyer. I'll remind you of what 1 Peter 5.8 warns. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Satan is a devourer, a destroyer. He is the dragon. But Revelation 20, verse 2, also calls him that old serpent. Why would Satan be called a serpent? Well, some of you might say, I know exactly why. Because snakes are pure evil. Well, the strong aversion that many people have to snakes aside, I know some of you won't be able to set that aside, but what do we think of when we think of snakes? Well, often we think of venomous snakes. We would think of snakes that are poisonous, that are dangerous, um, that you want to stay very far away from. We also think of something sneaky, something slithering slowly and silently in the shadows, a lurking danger, hiding coiled in the dark, ready to strike. But a serpent is something that is dangerous and sneaky. Those are the two things that we would tend to associate with a snake. And I think that that makes it clear to us why Satan is called a serpent here. But of course, when we, when we read that phrase, that old serpent, most of our minds are going to go immediately to where we started this message, to the Garden of Eden. Back in Genesis chapter 3, I mentioned that the first two chapters, all is well. God has created a perfect world. He's made a beautiful garden. He's put Adam and Eve in that garden, and everything is wonderful. And then Genesis chapter 3 opens with, Now the serpent was more subtle, more cunning, more crafty, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, Hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruits of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the serpent's work is done. 
He's accomplished exactly what he was there to accomplish. We know that Eve goes on to take of that fruit. She eats it. She gives to Adam. He eats of it. They have disobeyed God. They have sinned. The innocency and the perfection is broken, and they're cast out of the garden. But what was Satan's work through that serpent in Genesis 3? Deception. He was there to deceive. Satan is not just a destroyer. He is a deceiver. And when we read that he is that old serpent, I think that's what this is bringing out for us. Satan is a deceiver. Jesus told a group of Jews in John chapter 8, verse 44, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's a destroyer, remember? And abode not in the truth. I'm sorry. Yes, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it, a deceiver. He is a murderer and a liar. He is a destroyer and he is a deceiver. He's a dragon and a serpent. But Revelation 20 verse 2 also calls him the devil. What does it mean when the Bible calls him the devil? Well, we often think of that as just a name for Satan. It's just a a name that has been created to refer to him. But it's not just a name. The Greek word that has become that name for Satan literally means a false accuser or slanderer. Satan is not only a destroyer and a deceiver, he is an accuser. And this is a truth we find throughout Scripture. And I'll This is helpful to me to remember when you read through your New Testament and you see the devil, literally that's what that word means, a false accuser, a slanderer. As we were reminded last Sunday, we see a clear example of this in the book of Job. Satan comes before God in that book. He calls, and and God calls Satan's attention to Job and to his pure devotion. He says, hast thou considered my servant Job? Is there anyone like Job? And Satan says, doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land, but put Forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. What is Satan doing? He is accusing. God looks at Job, and he says, I am pleased with Job. Satan, consider Job. His heart is right before me. And what does Satan do? You're right. No, he says... No, God, you don't understand. Job has a wicked heart. Job is just doing what he's doing because you've blessed him. He has all this stuff. You've done so many good things for him. He loves his life because you've blessed him. And that's why he acts like he loves you. That's why he worships you. If you touch the things he has, if you take away his belongings, he will curse you. He's blessing you now. He will curse you if you take it away. Satan is accusing Job, and of course he's falsely accusing him, but we go on, God uh, gives permission to Satan, 
to take away Job's possessions. And of course, there's the story as all these servants come in and tell Job about all these things that have, have been destroyed. He's lost his, all of his belongings and he's lost his family. And just him and his wife left. And then Satan comes before God again. And again, God points his attention to Job. Still, Job has not done what Satan said he would do. He has not cursed God. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. Again, he's accusing. He says, all you've got to do, he's lost everything, but anyone would give up everything as long as they can keep their health. If you take away Job's health, then he'll curse you. Now, thankfully, we know that Satan was a false accuser. And God had some things to do in Job's life, but of course, um, Satan was bringing up these accusations falsely against Job, but that's what he does. Another example is in the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. We won't take time to look at that. But Joshua, the high priest, standing before God, and there Satan is, is there in that vision as well, accusing Joshua before God. Satan stands ready to accuse me and you. He does all that he can to accuse us to God. Now, I am grateful that he is not the only one is standing before God talking about us. Because while he's accusing, Jesus Christ is advocating. And guess who has more clout? <laughs> but Satan is going to work his hardest to accuse us before God. And if we're washed in the blood of Christ, there's nothing he can do there. But as an accuser, he's also going to seek to accuse us to our own hearts. He is going to seek to drag us down, to discourage us, to cause us to think little of God's forgiveness, and to sink us in guilt and shame, and make us think we're in a pit we can never get out of. That is one of Satan's ploys that he has trapped many Christians in, accusing them to their own heart, and causing them to stay in their sin because they think there's no escape. He also, I believe, seeks to accuse believers to other believers. He seeks to work in our hearts to turn us against each other, to cause us to judge the motives of others and think that they are impure. He is doing everything he can to accuse so that he can break up the work that God is seeking to do. So Satan is the devil, literally the false accuser. And finally, Revelation 20, verse 2, calls him Satan. Now, the name Satan is actually, um, again, it's a name, but it comes from a Hebrew word that means adversary. Satan is the destroyer, he's the deceiver, he is the accuser, and he is the adversary. To shed a little light on this part of his personality, uh, look with me at Luke chapter 22. I promise we're going to make it back to Revelation, but I, I want to give you a picture of the identity of Satan before we consider the events that happen in Revelation 20. 
Here in Luke chapter 22, the Passover feast is drawing near for Jesus and his disciples. And with the feast also drawing near are the events of Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. And in verse 2 of Luke 22, the Bible says, And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him. Speaking, of course, of Jesus. For they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas surnamed Iscariot, being one of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them. They're looking for an opportunity, but they know they can't just arrest Jesus in public because it could cause an outcry. So they're looking for a way to do this behind the scenes, under cover of darkness. And Satan enters into Judas. And Judas decides, I will sell Jesus out to the priests for the money that they'll give me. Satan is working hard as Christ's adversary. His goal is to destroy Christ. Remember Revelation 12? He wants to kill that man-child. He wants to kill the promised one. And he's working here to make sure that it happens. Uh, He worked hard to bring Christ's life to a disgraceful and shameful death. And one would say that he succeeded. But uh, more on that later. Satan is Christ's adversary. And he's also the adversary of the followers of Christ. Later on in Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 31, the Bible says, And the Lord said... Simon, Simon, speaking to Simon Peter, Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Satan wants to sift Peter. Now there was a process that they would go through when they would bring the grain in from the fields in those days. And there were three parts to that process. First of all, they would thresh it. So they had instruments that were heavy, and they could beat the grain, and it would release the seeds. They would, they would separate from the stalks and from the chaff. And then they would sift it. They had uh, round sieves or sifters that they would put the, the seed in, and they would throw it up in the air, and that would help to separate as well. The seed would fall through, and the chaff would stay up. And then a final process um, they would also winnow it. They would, they would toss it up in the air to help even more of the chaff to separate. But there was this process they would go through to break that grain down and to get it to where they wanted to have it. And Jesus is saying to Peter, Satan wants to have you so he can break you down into what he wants. He wants to take you and he wants to transform you into what he wants you to be. And it's interesting because there are two processes at work in Peter's life. There are two who are trying to transform Peter at this point. On the one side, you have Satan who wants to take him and it in to, to take the picture of the wheat or the grain. He wants to get all the chaff and keep the chaff and, and throw the 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 good grain away. 
He wants to keep what is broken and what is messed up and what is sinful about Peter. And everything good that God is doing, he wants that gone. Well, on the other hand, Jesus Christ, he knows that Peter is going to fail. He knows that Peter is going to deny him. But he also seeks to break Peter so that that chaff can be blown away and he can keep that seed, that, that good work that he is doing in Peter. And he says, there is a tug of war going on in your life right now, Peter. Satan wants to have you. He wants to be the one to sift you. He wants to turn you into what he wants in your life. He is against you. He is your adversary. And he and I are both wanting your life. But I, prayed, I am praying for you that when that time comes, that your faith will not fail. And thank God that Christ won that tug of war. Peter surrendered to God. God broke Peter's heart and did turn Peter into the man he wanted him to be. But Satan was the adversary in that relationship. He was going after Peter. He is not just the adversary of Christ. He is the adversary of the followers of Christ. Such is the identity of the villain who is cast into the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 20. But what is his story? What is going on with Satan? What is he doing between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20? Um, we're not going to cover all of those chapters, don't worry. All right? But I do, before we, before we bring this to an end with what happens to Satan, I do want to draw our attention to Satan's success. Why was Satan cast into the bottomless pit in verse 3? What did, what did the Bible say there in Revelation 20? It said that he should deceive the nations no more. So what has he been doing? He's been deceiving the nations. See, through the years, Satan has experienced quite a bit of success as he has carried out his work of deception. You remember the parable that Jesus told, the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soil in Luke chapter 8. There Jesus says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it, and some fell upon a rock, and as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit in hundredfold. Now, of course, at first, the disciples don't understand what he's talking about. All right? Because clearly this isn't just a story about somebody who's sowing seed. There's a lesson here. And he goes on to explain to his disciples the spiritual truths presented in his parable. He tells them... Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And what does he say about the seed that falls by the wayside? Those by the wayside are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. That is a sobering verse. We could go on and talk about the other seed, but... The devil is at work. He is busy trying to snatch the word of God out of unprepared hearts, lest it take root. 
Why is it that so many hard-hearted unbelievers so quickly forget the sober realities of the Word of God? Well, Satan has something to do with it. He is working to try to snatch that word away before it can do its work. Now, we know that if the soil of the heart is prepared, there is nothing that Satan can do. But so many in this world are hard-hearted against the things of God. And so when that seed falls in that heart, Satan comes in, and through his deceptive ways, he causes that word to be forgotten. He snatches it away so that nothing fruitful can come from that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 tells us, The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now Paul goes on to share in this chapter the power of God's light, its ability to penetrate dark hearts. And that's actually where we, where we got our theme verse from last year for our missions conference. That God, who caused the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. And nothing can stand against God's light. But we must not overlook what this verse tells us. The God of this world, Satan, is blinding the minds of unbelievers. He's continuing to experience much success in keeping hard hearts hard and keeping blind eyes blind. That's what he is seeking to do in the lives of unbelievers. And sadly, he is succeeding in many lives. Soberly, we need to realize that Satan does not only experience success in the lives of unbelievers. Acts chapter 5, um, there's a sober story here that shows us the power that Satan can exhibit in the lives of careless Christians. Acts chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 1. Uh, before I read that, just to set the stage, this is the early church. There's a lot of excitement about the things of God. And many of the people in the church have decided they're going to sell their belongings, they're going to pool it all together, and they'll just give to people who need. They'll make sure that everybody's taken care of. They're not concerned about what all that I own, what all is mine. They're like, let's share it. Let's, let's just do the best we can to support each other and support the work of God. They're excited about that. They're sharing their things from free hearts, generously giving to other believers. And some of them do it, and it kind of starts this movement where others are doing it as well. But then there are others whose hearts are not there, but they're starting to feel pressure. All these other people are selling all their property, they're selling their goods, they're giving it to the church. What about us? Now we look bad. We haven't done that. And verse 1 of chapter 5 says, But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession... They're going to get in on this. And kept back part of the price. So they sell uh, something that they have, some, some property or whatever, and, and they, they, here's part of the price that we're going to keep back. And then the rest is for the church. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, they, they aren't doing anything sinful. They, that's an opportunity to show generosity. They're not giving it all like others have done, but they aren't called by God to do that. 
And so there's nothing wrong with that. They, they can give a little bit to the church and keep a little bit back. But the Bible says Ananias does this, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. The problem is that when they do this, they make it look like they have sold everything and they're giving it all to the church. They don't want to be less than these others who've given everything. Nobody's going to really do enough research to find out how much that property cost and make sure that they actually gave it all. And so they want to get in on this train. They want to be one of the super spiritual Christians too. And so they sell this possession and they're going to bring part of it and pretend that it's all. Well, Peter, unlike Ananias and Sapphira, is walking with God. He's sensitive to God's spirit. And God gives him grace to quickly see through this lie. And he says to Ananias, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Ananias and Sapphira did this for the, for the sake of the show. But what's, what uh, Peter clearly shows here is that who was behind this? Who was working to influence them to make this decision and, and show off in this way and try to make it look like they were giving everything? He says it's Satan. Satan filled Ananias' heart to lie. The father of lies deceived this Christian couple and influenced them to bring disgrace on themselves and the name of God. We know, of course, that God would have none of it. And there were some young men that day who buried both Ananias and Sapphira. Satan has seen much success through the ages. I don't say that to discourage us this morning, to get us down. I say it as a warning. Because Satan is at work. And he is succeeding in many lives in accomplishing the work of deception. But let's turn our attention now to Revelation 20 as it tells us about the rest of his story, the end of his story. Revelation 20, uh, ever since Satan's declaration of war against God in Genesis 3, his doom has been sure. Even back in Genesis 3, God promised in Genesis 3.15 that though Satan would wound the woman's seed, or Christ that's talking about, his own head, Satan's head, would be crushed. Still, even though he knows his defeat is sure, he strives to defeat God. At the cross, Satan thought that he had struck a decisive blow when the man-child, God's promised one, hung on that cross, bleeding and dying. And Satan rejoiced to see that day. Finally, he had succeeded he had succeeded in killing the promised one of God, in killing the Messiah. But of course, that actually was Satan's mortal blow. Colossians 2, 
verses 14 and 15, share that at the cross, Jesus not only took the teeth out of the law that condemned us. Um, by his forgiveness, we are no longer condemned under the law if his righteousness has been imputed to us. Uh, he shares that in verse 14. And then verse 15, he says that also at the cross, Jesus stripped Satan and his forces of their power and made a spectacle of their defeat. Spiritually, Satan thought he was going to lift up Christ on the cross and rejoice in Christ's defeat. But instead, Jesus Christ lifted them up in shame and rejoiced over their defeat and said, look at them. He made a show of them openly, it says. And so, at the cross, Satan's defeat was secured promised all the way back in Genesis 3, secured at Calvary, and it will be completed in Revelation 20. There are actually, in the book of Revelation, three battles between Satan and his followers and Christ and his followers. There's one back in, in Revelation chapter 12. Um, the Bible says there was a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Uh, so remember back in the book of Job, Satan stands before God. Well, there comes a day when he's no longer allowed to stand before God. He has been cast out. He's allowed to be on the earth, and that's it. Uh, now, there's reason to believe maybe this happened while Christ was on earth. Maybe this is what happened at the cross. Um, but regardless, whether it has already happened or it's going to happen, that battle is going to be fought and Satan's going to lose. Last time we were in the book of Revelation, we looked at the battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19. And we saw as the beast, who of course is the servant of Satan... He gathers an army against Christ. They meet in the valley of Megiddo, and Christ destroys the whole army with a word. So again, Satan has been defeated, and that's where Revelation 20 comes in. After that defeat, he's thrown into the bottomless pit, and after that time, there's a 1,000-year reign that's outlined in verses 4 through 6. Again, we're not going to focus on that tonight or today. We'll focus on it another time. But it's not still completely over. Picking up in verse 7, the Bible says, And when the thousand years were expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. He's at it again. The deceiver, the adversary, He's using his lies to gather this numberless army against God. One last ditch effort. Summoning all of his powers to try to resist God. Verse 9, And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. That is the final defeat. 
that is the last we hear of God's archenemy. And Christ shows himself to be the banisher of Satan. I'm thankful for that this morning. Thank God he has already defeated his archenemy, and Satan's doom is sure. As our English translation of Martin Luther's classic hymn uh, says so triumphantly, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We need not fear him. He is a defeated enemy, and his doom is sure. But as the first verse of that great hymn says, speaking of Satan, his craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. He is powerful. He is still active. And he's still experiencing a degree of success. So we do not need to fear, but we do need to be on our guard. Because he is still the destroyer. In Acts 26, Paul talks about his conversion and God commissioning him. And he relates how God told him he was being sent to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. From the power of Satan unto God. Do we recognize the lives all around us that are under the power of Satan? Are we clear-headed about the fact that we are surrounded every day by people who are headed destruction to destruction because they're in the clutches of Satan? And he is working hard to destroy their lives both here on earth and for all of eternity? Are you one of those people today? If you're not forgiven with an inheritance among the sanctified, as Paul says. If you've never come for salvation and submitted yourself to God, then you are under Satan's power today. And he would love nothing better than to see you destroyed in this world and the next. Satan is still a destroyer, and we need to be understanding of that We need to be thinking that way about the people around us. And if you've not received Christ, you need to understand that about yourself. He is also still the deceiver. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, and he admonishes them to adopt a God-honoring position on forgiveness and restoration. And then he says in verse 11, Lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. But I fear that some of us may indeed be ignorant of Satan's devices, his schemes, his strategies. Satan is an effective deceiver. As we saw with Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, careless Christians can fall for Satan's lies. Let us beware lest we, through deceit or bitterness or pride or unfaithfulness or any other sin in our lives, become servants of Satan in the church of God. 
We must also beware because Satan is indeed the accuser. After coming to understand that the name devil literally means false accuser, it gave a new meaning for me to Ephesians 6 when it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, against the deceits of the accuser. Satan is working hard to accuse the followers of Christ. He's going to attack your heart, trying to get you to wallow in your guilt and shame, trying to get you to refuse the freely offered forgiveness of Christ. He's also going to do it by accusing others to us, trying to get us to think less of them, trying to get us to tear them down. And it's only walking with God and allowing Him to prepare us for battle that will enable us to thwart those, att those attacks. And finally, recognize that Satan truly is the adversary. Some people give Satan more credit than he deserves, um, seeing him behind every sinful act that's ever committed, or blaming their own sin on him. But others, and I think myself included too often, too quickly dismiss him. He is our archenemy, and he is coming after us. Again, it's not a cause for fear. Because though his power is great, God's is greater. But the words of James 4, 7 are very appropriate for us to remember as we close this morning. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We must ask God for grace to understand and see the devices of Satan and to resist him at every turn. But the key is the first part of that verse. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Because you cannot be submitted to God and submitted to the devil at the same time. You cannot be serving God and serving Satan at the same time. Thank God that one day, Christ will banish Satan forever. But who are you serving today? Let us not be ignorant of Satan's devices. Let us watch, be sober. Let us resist the devil and submit to God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that Satan's doom is sure because your victory is sure. Thank you that Nothing we've considered today needs to be a cause for fear for anyone except those who are apart from Christ today. And I pray that you would fill the hearts of anyone who does not know Christ. Fill those hearts with fear this morning. Fear for the power of Satan that they are under. Fear for the eternity separated from you that they can anticipate. And may that fear drive them to Christ. Those of us who know Christ, help us to be clear-headed about the identity of Satan, about the work of Satan. Help us to be careful, to be vigilant. Help us not be ignorant of Satan's devices. And may we be like our Lord Jesus Christ, who was tempted and tempted and tempted. Satan attacked and attacked and attacked and tried to deceive and even tried to use your word to deceive and at every turn, Jesus Christ turned to your word and he turned to your power and he resisted the devil 
and the devil fled from him. May you help us do the same. Give us wisdom and discernment and guide us. We thank you this morning that one day we will be free from the very presence of our enemy, living with you forever. Lord, today we thank you that in your presence, Jesus Christ speaks on our behalf. And because of that, we can come to you in prayer. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.